Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Hi, I'm Emily, and with me is Pastor Zach. This week, your sermon covered Genesis 8, verses 1 through 19. How do we address the conflict of dates in verses 4 and 5 that refers to when the tops of the mountains were visible? So Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Verse 5, And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So verse 4 tells us that on the seventh month is when the mountain is when the ark comes to rest on the top of Mount Ararat. But then we read in the next verse that it's not until the 10th month the tops of the mountains are exposed. I don't think that there's necessarily any conflict here for a couple of different explanations are possible. Number one, we have to account for the displacement of the ark. So there's a, a significant percentage of the ark itself, which is under the water as it's floating. So when it comes to rest on the top of Mount Ararat is not necessarily when the tops of the mountains would be visible to the eye. They are still submerged underwater. Anyone who's ever gone kayaking or canoeing has experienced when you come into shallow water and you don't see a rock that's just underneath the surface and your boat ends up getting stuck on that. So I think that may be the phenomenon that's happened here. Also, it may be the case that as in any mountain range, there are different levels of heights at the mountain peaks. And so here within uh, a mountain range here, um, the arc is caught on one of the higher peaks, and it's still some time before those that are a little bit lower, at lower elevations are exposed as the water begins to abate. So I think there's a number of different ways we can look at that text, but I don't see that there's any internal contradiction in verses 4 and 5 about the process of the waters abating. Is there any significance in Noah choosing a raven over a dove? You know, it's interesting as you think about the connections in uh, Genesis chapter 8 with this idea of water and then that the waters are dispersed through a wind. The um, concept of the Spirit of God is the same word that frequently gets used for wind throughout the Old Testament, the Ruach. Uh, Elohim. Ruach can mean spirit or wind. So when it's the Ruach Elohim, that's the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. Um, So there's this interesting connection there between wind and water that we find early in Genesis chapter 1, where the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Then in the flood, God dissipates the waters by causing a wind to blow upon it. Then, of course, at the baptism of Jesus, we have him emerging from the waters of the Jordan, and then the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, but this time as a dove. And then we read later in the New Testament that baptism corresponds to Noah's flood, that there's a connection of this idea of washing and purification. So we've got all of these interesting connections between wind, water, spirit, and then the spirit being a dove. So I'm not saying that we should read Genesis chapter 8 and say, wow, look, the dove symbolizes the Holy Spirit. And yet I do think that there are at least some interesting images that the New Testament is picking up on in this connection of wind, water, spirit. Is there anything significant about the term ark? Yeah, so the term ark is really fascinating because it's only used twice throughout the Old Testament in two different narrative accounts. And the one is here in Noah's uh, story, but the other is in the story of Moses. When all of the Hebrew children, all the Hebrew boys, are being uh, executed on the order of Pharaoh right after they're born, we of course read that 
The Hebrew midwives are saving as many of these children as they can, but there's concern for um, the parents of Moses about their baby son when he's born. They recognize that Moses is a special child. And then the writer of Hebrews picks up on that and says that they that they were able to discern that there was something unique about Moses that was marked him as a special child of God, as a future deliverer. So they weave for him a basket, but the word for basket there in Exodus is the same word for ark that's used here. So an ark delivers Moses from the waters of the Nile. An ark delivers Noah and his family, of course, from the global flood. Interestingly, Lamech, Noah's father, also identifies in uh, Genesis chapter 5 that his son Noah is a unique son, one who might even be able to be a deliverer. He says that maybe this will be the one who finally delivers us from the curse and who brings the earth to rest. That's actually what Noah's name means, to rest. And of course, uh, Moses picks up on that. The ark comes to rest on a mountain peak and Noah inside of it is the one who is to bring the earth to rest. So you've got these two figures in the Old Testament, both of whom are prototype deliverers. They are types of the deliverer to come, and both of them are delivered uh, by means of this ark from waters of wrath and death. And so I think within that, what Moses is doing is he's connecting the, his own story by using that that term for ark for the basket with the story of no uh, with of Noah, so that we notice this connection of the fact that God is establishing a type, someone who delivers themselves and others uh, as a result of God's saving grace in their lives. How should we address other ancient flood accounts? So there are a number of ancient flood accounts. Uh, Perhaps most famously, the Babylonians uh, have a number of different flood myths. And I don't think that's accidental, by the way, because we're about to come to the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, Babel becomes connected to the Babylonian Empire, and as a result of the dispersion that happens at the Tower of Babel, I think we can expect that a lot of these families of the earth who then have their own language that develop into their own cultures, they are recent descendants of those who have survived the flood, so they propagate their own stories about the flood, but over time they change these stories. And so in the Babylonian myths, we find some flood stories that are very, very similar in some ways to the Noahic flood, but are different in a number of key respects. So of the most well-known Babylonian myths, we have a flood that is brought on by the gods because they have grown sick of humankind, but they initiate a flood and then they are alarmed by the destruction that has happened, and they regret almost instantly that they caused this flood. They instruct a man ahead of time who they like to build an ark in order to save himself from the flood. Uh, Interestingly, that ark is a perfect cube. So one big issue with the Babylonian myths is that 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 ark would be unable to float. Uh, Mathematically speaking, it could not have actually saved anyone. It would have sank uh, to the bottom. Uh, Unlike uh, Noah's ark, as we do some studies, in fact, there have been some scientific tests that have been done to demonstrate that the dimensions of the ark uh, that's described in Genesis would have floated even with animals uh, on board. Um, And then interestingly, in the Babylonian myths, The gods bring the ark to rest on top of a mountain. The man inside the ark opens it, 
and he sends out birds to see if the earth is inhabitable again. But the order is reversed. A dove goes out first, but it comes back because it doesn't have anywhere to land. And then he sends out a raven and the raven just flies away. And because it doesn't come back, the man believes uh, that it must be okay to reemerge from the ark. He does. And then on account of the gods being upset that they had been talked into such a massive destruction by one of the gods in their midst, they punish that god and he has to give some of his own deity to the man who he had rescued in the ark. And so the man who emerges from the ark becomes elevated to the status of a god. So there's a lot that's going on in those myths. Some clear similarities uh, to the Genesis account, but also some really significant differences. And I think what we can chalk that up to is the people from Babel, they disperse, they create their own culture, they create their own religions, but they bring with them some of the historical remnants of what they remembered being told in their youth about the flood, but they reclad it with their own new religious mysticism. Why were all the living creatures who roamed the earth and flew in the sky all wiped out with humanity, aside from those on the boat, while all of sea life was seemingly untouched? Well, I don't think we can assume that all of the sea life is untouched. Now, there are obvious reasons why we don't need to bring sea creatures onto a boat in order to survive a global flood. God could preserve sea creatures in the midst of water. And yet I don't think we have to assume necessarily uh, that all or even most of the sea creatures survive uh, this flood. Clearly, there are at least two of every kind enough to continue to propagate each different kind of sea creature. And yet we're talking about unbelievable turbulence and chaos in these waters. The fountains of the deep opening up, the sky above raining down. Anytime you see a massive water event like a hurricane or tsunami, there's also massive marine life loss that happens in these catastrophic events. I think we can certainly conclude that that is exceptionally likely to have occurred in the greatest uh, marine catastrophe in you know, global history. There was a significant loss of, of life among the sea creatures, and yet God continued to sustain life so that the seas are teeming with life after the flood in the same way that the earth comes to teem with life as a result of the repopulation uh, as the ark uh, is opened. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.